Amen. So, so I want to I wanna, I wanna travel through some treacherous waters this morning, if we can, all right? Um, how many people love politics, right? <laughs> especially, especially right now, right? I'm sure you're loving politics right now, right? Probably not. Probably not. There, there is a sense in which, there's a sense in which the more, the more secular we become as a society, the more secular we become as a culture, the more, uh, the more we are kind of losing our footing in terms of really, even if we aren't worshiping God and showing allegiance to God, at least acknowledging him. Seems like the more, the less that we're doing that, the more that we are finding ourselves dependent on politics and politicians to save us, right? Because ultimately, we have to worship something. You, you, can't, you can't just not worship. There is, no, there is no such thing as someone who isn't worshiping. They just find other things to worship. There's no such thing as a person that isn't dependent and looking for salvation somewhere. They just look to other things to find that salvation, and so as a culture, as a country, as a society, what's happening is that the farther, the farther we veer away from uh, the, the, the ideal of Christianity giving us that hope and salvation, and Christianity being a source where we can actually place our hope and our trust and our worship in, the farther we veer away from that, the closer we begin to veer into other things like politics and politicians being our savior and being our protection and hope. Even during the, the, one of the national conventions this year, you know, a gentleman said, I alone can fix this. I alone. He said, I alone several times, and I was just kind of watching the TV like, that's a lie. I mean, it's, it's just, I'm, sure you're, I'm sure you're pretty smart, but you alone? No, it's plenty of, no. First of all, God. And second of all, Sure, there's some other smart people around here too. We just don't know them yet, right? But, but that kind of language can be used now because of, because of the way our culture has turned in terms of we identify and we latch on to finding hope and finding saviors outside of the Savior. And so this is an interesting chapter because this is really a chapter about, about this, this king. It, it literally, the entire chapter is tracing the, the, this, this king, King Herod Agrippa the first, and, and, it, and it's tying the divine king to this mortal king, this, this godless, feeble, evil king, and, and this divine, good, sovereign king. And the connection and the connection that's established here is startling from the beginning all the way to the end. And it's teaching us that, 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 that there is only one place where our hope can be established. And that is in Christ. And that is in the true king, the divine king. King Agrippa was half Jewish. And he leveraged his influence in the kingdom to to help the Jewish people. And so, because of that, he was very popular in the Jewish community, even though he was quite evil and scandalous. He was pro-Pharisee, so, so he often visited the temple, frequented to temp the temple, and, and, and he would have been well acquainted with all of the dust-up that, that Christianity was causing in the Jerusalem community. And, and, and so... This is a 
king, an evil king, but, but a, but a, but a kind of sharp king. And so he is opportunistic and looking for ways in which he can score political points with the base, the Jewish people, and keep the base loyal to him. And so the Christian community presented a perfect opportunity for this king because the Jewish community in Jerusalem despised the Christian community. And so every verse in this chapter has this king in the shadows kind of ordering and influencing and shifting and moving things in order to win these points for, for, his, for the sake of his own approval. However, as we continue to read the story, it becomes quite apparent that even though this mortal king believes he's the one with the power and the authority, and even though he believes he is deserving of the glory of a God, the true power lies with the eternal king. The eternal king who sits on the throne in the heavens and he alone is the one that is deserving of all praise, glory, and honor, doing all that he pleases for his, for his name's sake. And so we see the divine king demonstrating reign over this mortal king throughout the entire chapter. First of all, the divine king rules over the mortal king in death. Second of all, the divine king rules over the mortal king in deliverance. And thirdly, the divine king rules over the mortal king in damnation. Death, deliverance, and damnation in the God that rules over all of them. Verse 1, it says, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. The king rules over, the divine king rules over the mortal king in death. So when we, we left our story last week in, in chapter 11, we were literally reading about a gospel awakening in Antioch. And the spirit was spreading, the gospel is being proclaimed, the kingdom is expanding, love is being poured out in such a way where the folk at Antioch feel compelled to help the folk in Judea um, as, they, as they have need because, because um, famine has reached Judea. And so they're helping out those folks there. And so they send Saul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem from Antioch with the support of the church in Antioch, with the finances and the resources of the church in Antioch. And all seems to be looking up, and then we turn a page over to chapter 12, and the first thing we read in the very first verse is violent persecution is raising up, flaring up. And Christians in that region are being persecuted by this cruel opportunistic king. So much so that even one of, the, one of the very leaders of this Christian community, this expanding and spreading community that's setting the world ablaze, one of their key leaders is murdered, taken down by the sword at the order of this king. Folks, this is the Christian life. Powerful moments where our faith soars and then gut-wrenching moments of sorrow where our faith is stretched and our faith is tested. This is the ebb and flow of the Christian life. There are peak moments. There are valley moments. Unfortunately, uh, much of American Christianity simply does nothing to prepare you for these ebb and flows. Some of today's Christian teaching, for example, would have you believing that there was something wrong with James because he was murdered. 
Because some of today's teaching just basically gives you the impression that there's nothing but happy times in Christianity. There are no down moments. There are no tribulations. There are no trials. And if there are tribulations and trials, you just got to speak to those tribulations and trials and they'll stop happening. But folks, James is murdered and the scripture lays no blame on his shoulders. You can read it for yourself. There's nothing there to say, well, James did something wrong, and therefore that's why he got killed. There is zero reason to believe that James was any less faithful than the other apostle we're about to talk about who gets delivered. There is zero reason to believe James was any less faithful in declaring the gospel as the African men that came uh, came up to Antioch in chapter 11 that we talked about last week. There's zero reason to believe that he was any less committed to making disciples as Saul and Barnabas were when they traveled to Antioch in chapter 11. There was nothing wrong with James. In fact, if we are to believe the scripture, James' James's murder likely was a testament to his faithfulness and boldness in the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter that has become, that has become known in Christianity as the chapter of faith, the, the Holy Spirit gives us these words to ponder. Chapter 11, verse 32 through 38, it says, And what more shall we say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jeph, uh, Jeph, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. Enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sown or cut in half. They were killed with the sword like James. And they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. See, James was in that latter group. In the hall of faith, there are some who sat in dens of lions and weren't devoured. But in the hall of faith, there are some who were devoured by lions. In the same hall. James was in the latter group. There were some who tried, who tried, or who were tested by the sword, but were spared. There were some who died by the sword in the same hall. And the Bible says that James was the latter of that group almost seemingly glossed over. There's literally one verse about James getting killed. And then, the, and then the story just moves on. But God sees him. And God knows his story. He uses his story for his glory. He uses his story for the church's expansion. And like so many others after him, James will forever be known as a man that whom the world was not worthy to keep. Herod thought that he had control over James in death, but ultimately what we see is that Jesus had control over James in life. See, there are many who testify to this truth in Scripture. Jesus tells you, truly I tell you in John chapter 8, verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And so what does that mean for James? It means that the moment James' head was sliced by the sword, 
that he was awakened to life eternal. Paul tells his young pastoral assistant or, or understudy Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, this saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we die with him, we'll live with him. If we, I mean, if we, if we die with him, we will live with him. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. The Apostle John, when he was on the island, um, on the island exiled um, in Patmos, as he was having this vision of all the things to come, and the kingdom being consummated and coming, coming to its conclusion. He said in Revelation chapter 20, Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge, and I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their heads or their hands. Or, and, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. He said that the people that were beheaded came to life and reigned with Christ. Not the people that were beheaded were shunned and scolded because they didn't have enough faith. That's why they got beheaded. In Christ, our life has purpose. And even that can sometimes be very difficult to believe and accept. But I need you to believe and accept something even more difficult than that. In Christ, our death has purpose. See, this mortal king thought that life and death was really in his hands alone, when in fact life and death was in the hands of the divine king. Just because we don't understand always how he is using it doesn't mean that he isn't using it. Our God is sovereign over our lives. Our God is sovereign over our deaths as well. Because in him, we've been given eternal life. The king also shows that, the divine king also shows that he rules over the mortal king in imprisonment and deliverance. We see in verses 3 through 17 that, that, again, this ideal of King Herod Agrippa being an opportunist. He, like many other political leaders, past, present, future, and, 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 and beyond, loved to throw out red meat to their base, right, in order to keep the base on their side. And so they'll, they'll, they'll check the pulse of the base and say, well, what do they want? What would they want to keep me? And what do I need to give them in order to keep them coming back to me? To make sure I stay in power. And King Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa is no different. Verse 3 it says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews to kill Herod, I mean to kill James, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Oh, they like this. And he goes on and says that when he seized him, verse 4, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so listen to how he's a showman. He's a showman. Look at how he plays this, right? He brings, he, he, he arrests Peter, and then he puts four squads of soldiers over him to watch him. So he sees that they really, really like the fact that he is taking it to the Christians. And so he says, I'm going to play this up. 
They'll take four squads of soldiers, four squads, roughly about four people in each squad. So about 16 people he tasked with watching Peter at the prison. And then he sets it so that right after Passover, right, this this big festival week, there's going to be this kind of festival moment where he brings Peter out of the prison and says, all right, guys, giving y'all exactly what you want, killing them, taking them out. So he's playing this up. And he knows the people are going to love it, but there's one thing that he has not accounted for, and it is this, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. See, Herod thought he was in power, but, but we see now that he had not accounted for the true king who rules over all of his orders, rules over all of his imprisonments, and provides deliverance as he sees fit. See, the church may have been stricken by persecution. They may have been stricken or wounded by, by one of their own being captured and thrown in prison. They may have been, they may have been injured by one of, uh, another one of their own being put to death. But their hope still remained in the divine king who rules over all. Thus they prayed. And as a result, the divine king answers. Verse 6, it says, now when Herod was about to bring him out, right, Like I said, showman, he's ready for that signature moment. He brings Peter out. Everybody cheers for him to kill him. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him and said, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Let me say something, family of God. Let me encourage you this morning with a little truth. Just because God didn't move quite like you hoped in one of the circumstances that you've went through and experienced doesn't mean God isn't moving. God is always moving. Sometimes in ways that we clearly understand and we can clearly see and rejoice in. And then in other times where there's ways we just got to grit our teeth and say, Lord, I, I think you're doing something right now. I hope you're doing something right now. Please do something right now. Those are the times that, that God is moving in ways that don't fit our understanding. They're beyond our understanding, but he is always moving See, this church, this church, they understood that. And thus, even after James was slaughtered and Peter was thrown in prison, they didn't give up on God. They prayed and they sought the face of the Lord. But what if they didn't? What if Peter said, I'm not, man, James is dead, I'm not praying. And the church said, James is dead and Peter's in prison, we're not praying. 
The Bible says Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And thus, because they prayed, God answered. And because God answered, Peter was released. What could have been lost? What opportunity could have been lost in the moment if Peter didn't understand that and the family of God didn't understand that and they simply gave up and didn't petition the Lord any longer? What opportunities, what blessings from God are we missing out on because he didn't move in the manner that we hoped he would move the last time? And so we've stopped seeking him, saying, what good is it anyway? He's not listening. We must learn what it means to declare what our elders before us used to declare. And that is this, to hold on to God's unchanging hand. What does that mean? That means that God is not changing. He is doing something through your victories and through your defeats, through your joys and through your sorrows, through your your moments of happiness and in your moments of heartache. God is doing something. And so what we must do is hold on. To not flee, to not run, to not say, well, he didn't do it the way I thought he was going to do it, so he must not be doing it at all. He didn't respond the way I wanted him to respond, so he must not be listening. Damn, little guy, we got to hold on to God's unchanging hand. He moves in ways sometimes that fit our desires, but sometimes, sometimes he moves in ways that don't fit our desires. He's always moving, so hold on. Notice one more thing in this, in, in, in this portion of the text, in verse 12 through 17, it says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, Peter did, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying, holding on to God's unchanging hand. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not opened the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate, and they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. See, Everyone is shocked that this is happening because, listen, nobody's faith was perfect in their praying in this text. I need you to get that because sometimes we think faith has to be perfect for God to answer. But if you just read this text, you notice that nobody's faith is perfect here because they're all shocked that he actually answered. They're like, what do you mean Peter's there? No, he's, he's not at the door. You're kidding They're like, she's like, no, I mean, I was shocked too, right? I didn't believe it either, but yes, he's here. Peter's walking around, he thinks he's in a vision. Nobody believes that this actually happened. And so here, and so the reality is, is that sometimes what we find ourselves doing is not simply praying with perfect faith, but praying with desperate faith. Praying with desperate faith. you got to understand that after seeing James slaughtered and after seeing Peter thrown into prison, 
and knowing that there are 16 guards that are guarding him all the time. The man, that can, that can hit you pretty heavy. But for whatever reason, they stay with God. They prayed not so much more, not so much confident in what God was going to do, but they prayed with the confidence that if there was anyone in the universe with the power to do it, it was him. They prayed with the confidence that if anyone in the universe could intervene, that their God could. See, sometimes when you're rocked by tragedy, you're rocked by heartache, you're rocked by suffering, you're rocked by illness, the goal isn't to pray with perfect faith. The goal is just simply to pray with desperate faith. I know what it feels like to have the wind knocked out of your sails. But it doesn't mean that you stop praying. And I know sometimes you feel the, feel the burden where you're like, man, I just don't even know if I believe that God will move if I pray this prayer. Family like, like the man who was in need of God's hand or God's aid for the help of his daughter. Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Sometimes our prayers aren't perfect. Sometimes our prayers have to be desperate. And their prayer was desperate. And God moved in the midst of that desperate prayer. In verses 18 through 23, we, we kind of, we, we reach this point where, where the king that has been in operation, this mortal king that has been kind of breathing out these threats and violence through all throughout this chapter, he's now angry because Peter has been snatched out of his grasp. He's about to learn one more lesson, though, that will demonstrate once again that he is not in control. God is. In verse 18, it says, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, uh, Caesarea and spent time there. So, listen, think about this. He's mad. Kills the people, kills, kills the whole squad that was watching, watching over Peter. No fault of their own, right? Squad angel. Well, I mean, what are they going to do, right? Kills the whole squad. Says, hey, you guys were sleeping on the job, or all 16 of you, you weren't paying attention. That's why he got out. Even though the only mishap that was really at work was they were less powerful than the God that created them. And we can understand that. Herod seems to be in this seat of judgment, and he and he he is not the only one because it's way too common for uh, 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 for for comfort for our comfort for the most powerful people in the world to also be sometimes the most evil people in the world. When you look past, present, and future, the sometimes the most powerful people, the people with all the I mean, the people with all the clout can sometimes be the godless and the most evil. And so Herod is no different. He goes in, kills these guys for no reason whatsoever, for no faults of their own. We even see Herod's anger at work in, 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 in verse, verse, 20, uh, verse 20 because we have this group of people who 
They aren't doing anything either. It says, now Herod was angry, verse 20, with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. We don't even know why he's angry with them, but he's, he's angry. He's angry with everybody at this point. And then we read verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration or a speech to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. The people chose to gas him up. Gas him up. He's like a God. Arrogant, flattering lies to cater his ego. Not only, not only is, it, is it way too common for comfort for the most powerful people in our world to also be the most evil, it is equally way too common for the masses to pump and praise these evil yet powerful people for their own benefit. This is a dream come true for Herod. All his political maneuvering, all of his... Let's get James because the people will love it. Let's get Peter because the people will love it. Let's make sure I'm show, I show myself strong and forceful by killing these soldiers who let Peter get off free. Why? Because the people will love it. Let's make sure I, let's make sure I deal, deal shrewdly with, with, with Tyre and, and, and Sidon. Now, let's deal truly with these people. Why? Because the people will love me. And guess what? He got exactly what he wanted. Was it evil to do all these things? Of course it was, but it played well to the base. The Jewish people who were angry at these new Christians on the scene, in part because they thought that they were blaspheming God, but really in part because they were scared of cultural momentum shifting. They were scared of losing power. As this expanding religion creeps up into the place that they once held. And now he has his moment. The people are chanting, voice of a God, not a man. Takes out his Armani suit. Gets his nice snakeskin shoes. Puts them on the finest linens gets his speech out that he's been writing and preparing. His speech is met with thunderous applause, chants, the voice of a God, not a man. And he's just taking it in, smelling it like the rock. <laughs> there was only one problem. He wanted glory. That wasn't his. The glory wasn't his to hold. The glory wasn't his to crave. The glory did not belong to him. It belonged to God. And because of it, he paid dearly for it. Verse 23, it says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed. This last. 
In this moment, we learned several things. First, we learned that we often hope in things in people that can't hold the weight of our hope. Politics and politicians are one of those things. Even good leaders can't even, even good leaders can't bear the burden of our hope. How can bad leaders? How can arrogant ones? How can egotistical ones? How can godless ones? See, the people of Tyre and Sidon thought because, this, because they depended on the king's country for food that they could just gas him and pump him up. They figured since they depended on him for food that they would resort to idolatry in order to get what they need. The voice of a God, not a man. Idolatry comes when we don't believe God is sufficient to provide us with everything we need. Idolatry comes when in the midst of trials and struggles and hurdles, we lose sight of the fact that it is God who provides. Paul, when he was in chains in Philippians, never lost sight of the fact that it was God that, that was providing for him. He said, I've learned how to take every condition. I've learned the secret in all conditions and circumstances that I can do all things through who? Through Christ who strengthens me. It's God that provides. He tells the people that he's writing to, and now my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. I'm in prison. But you know what I know? God will provide. Not King Herod. God will provide. The moment we lose sight of that is the moment we will be trying to make something or someone God in hopes that they will provide for us, protect us, or save us. But in this moment, we also see again that God's glory is not for sale. Notice that Herod is struck down not because he says, I have, I'm the voice of a God. Not because he says, I am a God. But he's struck down because the crowd says, He's a God. He doesn't stop them from saying it. He just takes it in. It's really impressive. I'm glad y'all said that about That's why he dies. He dies not because he says it. He dies because they say it and he doesn't stop them. He does nothing to redirect the praise. The God that we worship is not only worthy of the glory that we try to pursue, but he's worthy of the glory that people try to give us. It all belongs to God. He said in Isaiah that I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. In this moment, Herod learns who the judge really is. And it's not him, it's God. And that judge does not take too kindly to people seeking to take glory from him for themselves. People pushing people to themselves as the answer. And not only is that judge judge over this life, but that judge is judge over all life, eternal life. He says in Matthew chapter 10 that do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul. The one that they should have really feared was in the heavens above, not on the throne, wearing his wacky robe with his fancy speech. And then look lastly at verse 24. It says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. 
Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Herod is dead. King Herod is dead. King Herod Agrippa has died. A gruesome death. The Arthur takes time to tell us that the worms ate us just like mass. They want you to understand that you don't take glory from God. King Herod is dead. But God is not. Notice what happens in the very next verse. God tries to take, his, take the glory from God, struck down. And then right after that it says, but the word of God continues. The word of God increased and multiplied. The mortal king is gone, but the divine king remains forever and ever. To him who sits on the throne, be glory and honor and power now and forevermore. Why put your hope in things that will fail you? Why put your hope in things that will fade? Why put your hope in people that will die when you have the opportunity to place your hope in the God of the universe, the divine king of all? His track record is trustworthy. Though he was divine, he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and came down and inhabited the flesh of the, ones he, of the ones he created, lived a perfect life, died on a tree in an excruciating and humiliating way, taking on the sin and the punishment that every single one of us deserves. And then he rose from the grave with all power in his hand, declaring, that he was mighty to save. And it's him who is the king. Whose name upon which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Why would you put your trust in anything else? In anyone else? When you know that they will all disappoint when you know that they will all fade, when you know that they will all wither and die, except for this king. Put your hope and your trust in this king. Politicians will come and go. Presidents will be elected. Presidents will be defeated. Governors will be appointed and, 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 and nominated. And then governors will die. But this king will remain. And so set your hope upon him.